Good morning. So several things to update everybody on. Um, one, last week I was at uh, the World Conference, the American Association of Christian Counselors, where they have 7,000 pastors and counselors from around the world. We had our, our booth there, and, and uh, it was an amazing time. We uh, had people coming up literally from all over the world. Uh, telling us how our materials that they'd picked up at previous events have been helpful in their families, in their um, therapies with their patients, and many people saying they use our stuff in their Sunday school classes each week at their churches. Uh, and after one of my uh, presentations, during the question and answer time, uh, two people actually raised their hands and independently talked about how using our materials in their clinics with their patients have significantly improved the outcomes for their, for their, their marriage and family counseling and, and individual therapy. And so it was just a really exciting time. Of course, we gave away thousands of DVDs and books and study guides, as we always do, but it was very exciting. I want to thank our volunteers who came, which um, include Joey um, Swinimer and Gary Jones, who came in from Canada, and uh, Luann Serafini uh, and uh, Susan Collenberg, who came in from California, and Mark Maldonado, who came in from uh, Michigan. And then from our local class, uh, Lori Atkins, uh, Christy Jennings, Dean and Zoe Scott. So all of those people came and volunteered. And then, of course, Francesca, who helped organize the back end and get everything there and administratively keep everything going. So we appreciate everybody who helped out there. And then all of you here and abroad who support us, who help without your support, we wouldn't have been able to do any of this. So we're thankful to everyone. Of course, I... I need to make a couple of uh, comments uh, about the events that happened in Vegas this past week. I'm sure you've all heard. And I don't want to focus just on the negative and the horrible, but in the aftermath, if you've noticed, this is a real contrast between selfishness and love. There were many stories already coming out of self-sacrifice where people put themselves in harm's way to protect others, to help others. And then the, the outpouring of love and affection with the blood donations and and the assistance and then the songs that have come out this week from various people contrasting uh, the principles of love and self-sacrifice and and so you know as we as we approach this we really want to emphasize there is a contrast of two two methods or principles at war in this world in the hearts of men a love for others and blessing others and seeking to help others or exploiting and hurting others and this class is all about helping people move away from the selfish uh, approach to life to the other centered love approach to life but we do want to keep those uh, families and, and victims in our prayers. And then I, I want to ask for the class to pray for this next coming week for me, because starting on Thursday, I'm going to be involved Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Garden Grove Church in um, right outside of Los Angeles. They're having a four-day atonement emphasis weekend with 10 speakers. I will be one speaker doing three programs. They will be webcasting all those talks live so if you want to go to their website you can find that link on our facebook page um and just pray that uh, that we will be able to present things i'll be able to present things in a healthy and an appropriate way and then on monday tuesday and wednesday of next week i'll be at kettering ohio where the north american division of seventh-day adventist is having an event for pastors in the north american division and i'm one of the keynote speakers doing two presentations uh for them so um if you will uh Keep me in your prayers during this time, and we will have materials to uh, to give away. In fact, we're going to take enough of the new book, The God-Shaped Heart, to give to every pastor who comes to attend at that event So uh, next week. So I, I really appreciate your prayers next week. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer today. Gracious Father in heaven, we, we are so humbled and awed by the beauty of your character of love. It's revealed in Jesus and what Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, we lift our hearts to you and ask that your spirit be poured in and, and fill us with your love, that we will be people who re- reflect you and your kingdom accurately. We want to remember the, the families and the victims of the tragedy and Vegas this past week, that you will continue to pour your spirit of love and the, and the contrast may be more clearly seen every day of, of, of people who live like Jesus versus those who do not, so that more and more people will be drawn away from principles of, of selfishness to the principles of love. I pray that you will be with our classes we study today and be with me as I'm speaking in these events coming up in the next week, that it will all be to your glory, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing uh, lesson number three in the quarterly um, Salvation by Faith Alone, the book of Romans, and the title is The Human Condition. And the memory verse is from Romans 3.23, which reads, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When you hear that, we've all heard it 
probably a thousand times if you've grown up in the church. Many, many times you've heard it. But what do you mean all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Does this mean all have broken a rule? All have done a bad deed? Or does it mean that all have a condition of heart that contaminates all their decision-making? What does it mean? Well, let's look at the first paragraph in the Sabbath lesson, and this is what it says there. Early on in the book of Romans, Paul seeks to establish a crucial truth, one central to the gospel, the sad state of the human condition. This truth exists because from the fall onward, we have all been contaminated by sin. It's wired in our genes as is the color of our eyes. What does that sound like? A, a bad, bad behaviors or a condition of being? Condition of being. I think, that's, I think that's correct. That's how they're describing it. And then if you look into Friday's lesson, let's jump to Friday's lesson. The first paragraph, this is what it says there. And it's quoting out of a book called The Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology. And this is what it says there. Thus the biblical, thus the biblical terminology, terminology shows that sin is not a calamity fallen upon the human unawares, but the result of an active attitude and choice on the part of the human. Further, sin is not the absence of good, but it is the falling short of God's expectation. It is an evil course that the human has deliberately chosen. It is not a weakness for which humans cannot be held responsible. For the human in, for the, human in the attitude or act of sin deliberately chooses a way of rebellion against God, in transgression against his law, and fails to hear God's word. Sin attempts to pass beyond the limitations God has set. In short, sin is rebellion against God. Do you hear the same definition being described in these two paragraphs in the same week of the same lesson? Or do you hear something completely different? That's from the handbook of what? That's from a book entitled The Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology. That's a thing? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's quite accurate. It's a thing. Do you agree with that description? Do you hear the same? Or do you, are you, are you not, is there tension in your mind? One is describing something in our genes uh, that we're contaminated by, a condition of being. Others describing deliberate choices. Well, what's your understanding? Do you have an understanding? What is sin? If somebody asks you, what is sin? Is it merely behavior? Or is it a condition of heart that leads to unhealthy behaviors? Bible says we're conceived in sin. Okay, Psalms 51. Well, the scripture says, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Ephesians 2, 1 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What, is, what do you think that's dead? In, how would you say that today? Dead man walking. Does that mean you are under a death sentence, but you would live eternally without any problem? except for the magistrate will one day execute you, or you have a terminal condition without remedy that will result in death. You're diagnosed as terminal. What does it mean, dead in transgression and sin? Terminal condition or on death row? They're not the same, are they? No. Well, Psalms 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Do we need to feel guilty about having the condition. Did you have a choice? Anybody in here make the choice to be born a sinner? You didn't have a choice in it. In fact, did you make a choice to be born? You didn't make that choice. So does God hold you accountable for the condition you have? Let's keep going. Do you need to feel guilty for having this in condition? If this condition is not treated... This condition uh, with which we're, we're born, what does it result in without treatment? Yeah. Ultimately, death. And before death, what else does it manifest itself as? Symptoms. symptoms. And what are the symptoms? Sins. Acts of destruction. Sinful behavior. So the symptoms, okay? So the sins, the bad deeds we have all done, are they the actual problem or are they the symptoms of the problem? Symptoms. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? You say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad behavior, bad action, that's sin. But I say if you hate in your heart. And Jesus is telling us all the bad behaviors that we call sins and focus on are merely the outworking of a heart condition that isn't fixed or healed. 
So first I'm going to read you a quote from Oswald Chambers. It says, sin is something I'm born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. Something on board, Psalm 51. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it. Would you like to know what causes condemnation? Condemnation comes, according to Oswald Chambers, when I realize that Jesus came to deliver me from this heredity of sin, and yet I refuse to let him do so. Do you see the difference? From that moment, I begin to get the seal of damnation. And then he quotes John 3, 19. This is the condemnation, and he puts in parentheses, and the critical moment. Here's the condemnation. These are Jesus' words speaking. That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. What Jesus describing? Condemnation is when light comes to you, when truth comes to you, when remedy comes to you, when opportunity to have yourself freed from this condition with your, comes to you, but you reject it. You prefer the sickness to the health. The condemnation isn't being born this way. The condemnation is rejecting the cure that will free you from this way. Remember the HIV-infected analogy? The two individuals HIV-infected have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Nothing. And if the baby goes up and there's a free remedy offered and the baby rejects the remedy, see, that's the baby's responsibility, not being having the condition. That's analogous. Now, this is from one of the founders of the of Seventh-day Adventist Church named Ellen White, and she wrote two quotes, and we're really challenging this idea of the definition in Friday's lesson, which talks about sin is a, a choice on the part of the human, an evil course that is deliberately chosen. If you, it means everyone here deliberately chose to be this way. We're going to challenge that idea. This is out of Workers' Bulletin, September 9, 1902. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was the manifestation of selfishness. He sought to grasp power to exalt self. The sowing of seeds of selfishness in the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against its terrible deceptive powers. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil by means of remedial missionary work and to destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence. Notice the contrast. Other-centered love, what we just talked about, what's happening in the aftermath of Vegas, people seeking to help others versus people that harmed others. Selfishness versus love. Selfishness is sin. Now, that's the next quote puts together. Historical sketches 138. There's a great work to be done for many, for many of us. Our minds and characters must become as the mind and character of Christ. Selfishness, which in the previous quote, all sin is selfishness. So you could say sin, but selfishness is inwrought in our very being. It has come to us as an inheritance and has been cherished by many as a precious treasure. So what does she say about the condition of sin? Same thing Oswald Chambers says. Something with which I'm born, something with which I'm inherited, and we're not held accountable for being born with this condition. We're held accountable or condemned if we reject the remedy that Christ has provided to free us from this condition. So let's go into Sunday's lesson. Romans 1, 16 and 17. They ask us to read the, those uh, verses. I'm going to read out of the new RSV. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And the lesson asks, what do these verses mean to you? Well, the first question I want to ask to you, what is the gospel? Okay, translated, good news. What is the good news? I love what you just said. She just said, the good news, God is love. Love it. I, I went to the internet and I put in a web search. What is the gospel? And the top responses, the first page, here's two responses at, at the top of the list. And they're from recognizable Christian sources. What exactly do Christians mean when they talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Since the word gospel means good news, when Christians talk about the gospel, they're simply telling the good news about Jesus. It's a message from God saying, good news, here is how you can be saved from my judgment. And he, uh, in this gospel, I'm going to get another quote in just a minute. But in this good news, 
<laughs> is this really good news? Is it really? This is like the cartoon you've seen in some of my programs. Jesus standing at the door, knocking, and the captions read, let me in. For what? So I can save you. From what? From what I'll do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> the, the good news is being saved from the one who's coming to save you from what he'll do to you if you don't let him in. Is that really good news? No, it's terrible news. It makes God out to be the source of pain and threat and coercion and suffering. Here's another one. This is from Christianity Today, an article from Christianity Today. Therefore, the gospel is the truth that we are all sinners or criminals before God and under the sentence of eternal death or separation from God and all that is good. In his love for us, God the Father sent God the Son to earth to become a man. Jesus was born without a sin nature and lived a sinless life. He allowed himself to be crucified, and as he hung on the cross, God the Father took all my sins, put them on Jesus, and punished him in my place. Jesus took the wrath of God for me, and he died. His body was placed in a tomb, and on the third day he came back from the dead, never to die again. God in his love and grace has overcome our two enemies, sin and death. And those who acknowledge to Jesus that they are sinners and trust him to save them from eternal condemnation are forgiven their sins and given the gift of life eternal with God. Is this good news? No. I said two enemies. It should yeah, be three. Exactly. Ah, so she said... He said two enemies. It should be three. What's the third enemy? According to this description, God becomes an enemy. Because God is the source of punishment. God is the source of death. And this is what I was going to ask. In this description, where, in fact, we're being delivered from death, it says, but where in this description is the origination of death? Where's death coming from in this description? God. So thus, you're right. They, they, they deny it. There's a huge uh, kind of cognitive disconnect but if you actually trace it back, in their description, God becomes a source of death, and thus we do need protection from him. His wrath, all his wrath was put on Jesus. So Jesus then is working on God to assuage his wrath, appease him, stand as a shield, and thus we need protection from death and sin and ultimately God. Is that good news? And then we get to live forever for this God. If he sees any defect in us, you better hope you got your shield. And you know the metaphors that are told about this. They're silly metaphors. You know them. You know them all. You you you're, you're driving you you're driving the road of life, and you keep wrecking your car. So Jesus comes in, and he and he drives your car for you, so you won't wreck anymore. Or how about the you've been caught speeding, and you have to stand before the judge, and the judge finds you, but then your attorney, who is an advocate, steps up and pays the fine for you. And you are then allowed to go because your fine has been paid. Well, take that speeding analogy. You're out and a police officer pulls in behind you. And you turn right, he turns, he turns right. You turn left, he turns left. Do you go, I feel so safe knowing that I have this security team watching over me? <laughs> Do you relax? Do you have less anxiety and less stress? Every time you turn, he's right, right behind you. Or do you be again scrutinizing in your mind? Do, do, do I have a taillight out? Did, did I forget my registration? Did, did I forget to turn with a signal? Did, did I roll through that stop? Uh, in fact, you start going through every possible thing you did wrong because you might be ticketed. This is how many people of you got. Was I speeding? Was I, that's a big one. Was I speeding, right? Well, that's how many of you got. The policeman in the sky who's following and tracking, watching for every mistake you're going to make. And he'll put it in his record book and it'll have to be accounted for because that's sin and we must have proper accounting, must have punishment. But don't worry. Don't worry. Hey, this is good news. Jesus is on board, and he's a heavenly radar jammer. And so when the Father tries to catch your speed, he can't get it because Jesus traveled and rode his car perfectly all the time, and he only bounces back the speed that Jesus went. <laughs> You're laughing at this. This is what this silliness teaches. There was an uh, Internet thing that I just happened to text today that was put out by... Um, New Jersey Church that had the exact same thing that you mentioned. It's something I probably would have thought five, ten years ago was fantastic, describing the understanding between law and grace. And now I look at it and I just shake my head and think, oh my goodness. Because it used that exact symbol of uh, going through a stop sign, going through a penal system, a uh, judicial process, and the whole grace thing. Is. Thank you. So let me really break this down, rubber on road stuff here. What this, these two presentations are, are not the gospel. 
They're the false gospel, the lie that has infected Christianity that actually obstructs the final message of mercy from preparing a people to meet Jesus. In this view, God is a being who requires the blood sacrifice of a human being in order to appease his anger and wrath so he won't kill you. That's what this theology teaches. This is paganism. This is Baal worship. That's what this is. And this is why the prophet Malachi in the you know, final end of time, the prophet Elijah must come again to turn the hearts of the sons, the fathers, and back again. We must have the message of love return. And why does this distortion come? Because there's an underlying lie that they all assume to be true that teach this type of thinking. And the underlying lie, we've, we've been emphasizing it for several years now, God's law functions like human law. Just a system of rules without inherent consequence that requires the rule giver to, uh, to oversee and impose punishments for rule breaking. Rather than seeing God as the creator, designer, builder of space, time, energy, matter, life, his laws, the protocols upon which reality are built, deviations from those are inherently destructive and lead to death to those who step out of harmony because life can't exist outside God's designs for life. I would suggest the good news is the good news that God is not as Satan portrayed him to be. That is the good news. And what did Satan tell, why did he tell in heaven? What did he tell to Adam and Eve on earth? Things like this. God is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. He is such a holy God, it's offensive to him. If he looks upon sin, his holy nature just screams out in wrath and anger to destroy it. And thus he must, he must be shielded, lest he hurt us. It's a complete lie of scripture. Because what the scripture actually says, when we fell into sin, rather than shielding himself from sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And who became sin for us? A angel being, a created being, or God himself. He didn't shield himself from sin. He took it upon himself to eradicate it and cure it. This other thing makes God into some terrible distortion, grotesque being. So is the problem with sin that God is offended or angry and inflict punishment? And if God would simply get some anger management classes and restrain himself, we'd be fine. We can live eternally in sin. There's nothing wrong. It doesn't hurt you. The only problem is that God eventually catches up and he kills you for it. Is that, is that how we see it? Or is the real problem what sin does to the sinner? So what is the gospel? The good news about God, who is love and truth, and goodness, and he never deviates from his methods. And how is the good news, according to the scripture we read, the good news, the gospel about God, is the power of God for salvation. So now that we've defined the good news is about God himself, how is the good news about God the power of God for salvation? Well, remember the cascade of destructive events that we've gone through many times. You're in a loving, other-centered marriage relationship. You love and trust your spouse. Your spouse loves and trusts you. And somebody comes to you and tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair. And there's no truth in it. But if you believe the lie, does something inside of you change? Remember, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I don't trust you. You're out with somebody else. You're going to bring me disease. Uh, I, I, you're not getting in bed with me tonight. I'm getting to the bank and getting the money. Okay, we have to watch out for self because we don't trust that person because we see them as being against us because we believe a lie about them. And this leads to acts of sin. This is a terminal condition. If we understand that, then do you understand the healing cascade? So we're in fear and selfishness. We believe lies. We're, we're, we're corrupted with this, this concern for self, this survival drive. Well, what is it that they need to heal? Well, the whole cascade of destruction started with believing lies. Then what do you think the healing cascade starts with? Truth destroys lies and restores trust. So the truth about God, who he really is, how he really operates, we see him in his true light. His true light Jesus revealed him to be. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, free from fear, free from self. And we open the heart and trust. I trust you. You aren't what I was taught you are. I don't need to fear you. I need to fear this condition that if unremedied will kill me. So I'm going to pray like David. Search me and see what's wrong with me, oh, oh Heavenly Father, and, and creating me a clean heart. So truth about you restores trust. We open the heart. And in open heart, the spirit is poured in and we get new desires and new motives. Uh, love is poured in Romans 5.5. 5. He pours his love into our hearts. And perfect love casts out fear. fear. So, so instead of acts of selfishness, acts of survival, now because of love, we have acts of altruism, acts of giving, acts of service. 
And the acts of service help us grow in godliness and reveal the kingdom of God. But the whole healing cascade starts with, what's the linkage that starts it? The truth about God. If you don't come to the truth about God, then you don't really trust him. And if you don't really trust him, then you never open the heart truly to him. And therefore, you don't get renewal. And you create theologies that cause you to live in fear. We're going to go through some of those in just a moment. This is why John 17, 3, Jesus said, Life eternal is they might know you. Because when you know him, you trust him. And when you trust him, you open the heart. And the spirit comes in. And love casts out fear. And you begin to live a life of love. So how does Satan oppose? If, if we understand this now, you understand how the, the, the corruption started by lies being believed. And now we understand that the healing cascade, truth about God, restores trust. Then Satan works to oppose this healing plan. What's his strategy? How does he work to stop it? Can't stop what Jesus accomplished. He tried in the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament, if you read it rightly, is a battle between Christ and Satan in the Old Testament to try to obstruct the avenue through which Messiah, the promised seed, would arrive. And Satan is working constantly to corrupt the whole human race. So there's nobody that will be the mother of Jesus. And you see that in the time of the flood, there's only one righteous man. And then after God says it's through Abraham's seed, then, uh, then the whole focus of, the, of both Satan's attacks and God's protections work on the children of Israel. Because if he can crush Abraham's seed, then he destroys the avenue for Messiah. And this is what's happening in Old Testament. If you track it through, this, that, but, but Jesus come, he's, he's finished his work. He's achieved the remedy. He can't stop what Jesus came to accomplish. It's done. But he can stop you and me from participating in it, from experiencing it. And how does he do that? Well, we, he obstructs the knowledge of God so that we don't truly trust him. He presents false gospels that misrepresent God as a being that we need to be protected from, which is the predominant view in Christianity. And the reason for this is that Christians have accepted the lie about God's law, which was prophesied in Daniel 7.25. A little horn power would arrive, and he would seek to change God's law. Paul wrote about this in Thessalonians. The man of sin would come. He would set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. How did he do that? What temple? Spirit temple. How? By getting us to believe God functions on imperialism and runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. Now we aren't worshiping God anymore. We have a form of godliness with no power because we're worshiping a dictator who we must be protected from. And then theology after theology, I was at the ACC, I presented these ideas there. And I asked people, think about, I asked the audience, I said, how many of your believe things that you've been taught, you actually currently hold them, that have this function for you? This is what they're doing for you, functionally. They're either hiding you or protecting you from God. And there are blank stares. I'm like, no, I don't believe anything like that. So I said, so, none of you believe things like this. I'm covered by the robe of righteousness so when the Father sees me, he can't see my sin. I'm washed in the blood or covered by the blood or cleansed by the blood so the Father can't see my sins. Or the blood has been applied to my record book in heaven so my sins are erased and when the Father examines the books, there's no record of my sin. Or Jesus stands between me and the Father and presents himself, Father, look at me, don't look at them. And then I paused. There was a silence and one of the ladies in the audience shouted out, Yes, I believe all those things. What do I do? <laughs> And I love that lady. She came to my booth and I gave her a hug. I said, I love you. <laughs> and that's the lie. Notice what functionally all those doctrines are doing. They're, they're, they function because you're scared of him. You're afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. We're to be reconciled back to him. When Jesus comes again, it says in John that we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. But that's not what Christianity is teaching. Christianity is teaching that when you accept Christ, he comes in, transforms, renews you, rebuilds you, recreates you so that you become like Christ. And why does it the Father sees Christ's perfect character when he looks at you? Because it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's not a covering over, it's a recreation within. This is the big difference. The penal legal model cheats people out of knowing God. It leaves them in fear, and there's no power. So they have a form of godliness with no power. I expose all of this in my latest book, The God-Shaped Heart. And those of you who've read it know I go through in, in, in great detail outlining across the landscape of Christianity, multiple denominations, this infection is accepted orthodox. But because of this infection, there's no difference in child abuse rates, spouse abuse rates, pornography use, addictions in Christian homes and non-Christian homes. 
form of godliness, no power, because hearts aren't changing. They're not even seeking heart changing. They're told you're going to keep sinning right up until time. Just be sure you get legal coverage for it. Um, fire insurance. <laughs> so I will read uh, those two verses that we were just looking at, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, from the remedy. But, oh, the first question. What, the last question for the text, though. What does it mean the just or the righteous shall live by faith? Shall live by trust. Trust. Okay, so they live by trust. So my understanding is that the, the righteous or the just are the ones who are choosing in governance of themselves to do what they know is the right or just thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura had to decide, do we bow or do we not bow? That was their choice to make. The just or right action, no bow. So that's the just or the... We choose in government to do the right or just thing. But then, here's the faith part. We trust God with how it turns out. Amen. We can't control the outcome. And thus they said to Nebuchadnezzar, um, we know our God has the power to deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we, won't, we don't know the outcome. We only know what's right for us to do. The just trust God with the outcome. So here's my paraphrase of, of those verses. I'm not ashamed of spreading the good news about God and his character, methods, and principles. As this is God's power which heals everyone who believes and trusts in him. Firstly to the Jews, those initially called to assist in spreading the remedy. And then to the Gentiles, those most recently called to help spread the remedy. For the good news is a revelation of God's true righteousness, character, methods, and principles that restores trust in God and results in recreation of, right, of a righteous and Christ-like character in humans. Just as, as it is written, the Christ-like will live by choosing what is right in governance of themselves and by trusting God with how things turn out. That's the remedy. I would take it a step further, though. I can't always choose to do the right thing, but I choose to ask Jesus to help me to choose to do the right thing. Okay, so to help you choose the right thing, let's just, let's just break this down. At the end of the day, what kind of help does Jesus give? You want help to choose the right thing. What kind of help does he give in that process. Does, does he actually take over the reins of your decision-making and choose for you? No. So at the end of the day, who's making the choice to do the right thing? Okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, no, yes, it's perfectly righteous to say that. I will tell you there are times, let's, let's look at this case of Lot. Lot's in Sodom. The angels come and tell him, you need to get out. Sodom's going to be destroyed. And if you see the description, when Lot's going out of the city, who's holding each hand? And angels holding it and says they dragged him out of the city. Now, do you think they dragged him out kicking and screaming against his will? I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. Do you think that was his hard attitude? No. No. So here's what I hear. And this is a great metaphor. Bible, the Bible stories are not only, in my view, historical facts, history, but they are recorded for a purpose. And it tells us in the New Testament why. As lessons to us. They teach us things. They have a larger lesson than just the facts of history. And so Lot was in a sinful environment, but he was a righteous man. But his heart had become attached to the sinful environment. His family was there, many of his family that didn't go out. His friends, his industry, his home, his gardens, his vineyards, everything that he's done, he really, he, he wants, so uh, here's what I see happening. Lord, I want to leave. I'm willing to leave. I choose to leave. I don't have the strength to get myself out of this situation. Will you provide the strength to get me out? And the angels drag him out. You will find yourself in circumstances of life. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relationship. Some situation where you are convicted, you see the truth, you make the choice, I'm willing. I'm willing to get out. But then you should pray, Lord, give me the strength. Drag me out. He won't drag you out until you make the choice. But sometimes we need the strength from him to follow through. Now, you may not need that kind of strength to brush your teeth. You might be able to do that one on your own. Okay? But, 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 but some of these things we need help for like that, especially and the deeper the heart is tied to it, the more we need that help. But the goal, as he drags us out, is to lead us to a place that in Galatians we experience the fruits of the Spirit, and the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control or self-governance, that he restores within us the ability to exercise authority over ourselves to carry out those decisions on our own. That's his plan. Um, there's a common misconception in, the, in point number one in Sunday's lesson. I want to uh, unpack that. And it's, in the point number one is the gospel. And this is what it says in the lesson. 
This word is a translation of the Greek word that means literally good message or good news. Standing alone, the word may refer to any good message, but modified as it is in in this passage by the phrase of Christ, it means the good news about the Messiah. Christ is the transliteration of the Greek word that means Messiah. The good news is that the Messiah has come and people can be saved by believing in him. It is in Jesus and his perfect righteousness and not in ourselves or even in God's law that one can find salvation. So they're saying here, the good news is that Messiah's come and we can be saved by believing in him. That's what they're saying. Now I want to suggest to you that it is, is, is good news. It is good news that the Messiah's come and because of what he's achieved, we absolutely can, by trusting in him, experience salvation and have everlasting life. It's absolutely, that is good news. It's not the good news. It's a good news. Not the good. In fact, the, 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 uh, the salvation of your soul is a result of the good news. But the salvation of your soul is not the good news. The good news results in saving your soul. What is the good news? Well, Revelation 14.6 says the gospel is the eternal gospel. Eternal, eternal, not just eternity future, but eternity past. It's eternal. There's a good news that is eternal for all eternity, past, present, future. This good news never changes. The character of God. You're saying the character of God, both. And the salvation, as wonderful as the salvation, by the way, and this good news is, is, is true about the only eternal being. There's only one eternal being. And Jesus said, there's only one being that's good. Remember? So if we talk about the eternal good news, it has to be about the only eternal good one. And so as wonderful as the salvation of humanity is, it is the result of accepting and trusting the eternal gospel, that God is our friend, that God is trustworthy, that God is love, that his methods are always in harmony with love, and that God in Christ sacrificed himself to fix this stuff, revealing the truth about him, restoring us to trust, and providing us with a new character. So yes, we get salvation, and that's really good news, but we get it because of the good news about God and who he is. Well, I'm coming to this class. I always thought... The gospel was the fact that Christ came to save us. I know, and let me, let me show you why this is important. This is a critical recognition to make, because when we put the salva- that, that salvation of us is the good news, then we no longer are focusing on the truth about God. So we aren't even thinking about the lies told about him. So as long as we create some construct that results in our salvation, then we're preaching the good news. And the construct is this legal construct that misrepresents God as the source of inflicted pain and suffering. But as long as we have the sins put on Christ and paid, then that's okay, because it's good news. We're still saved as long as we go through this legal mechanism to get it taken care of. What a selfish kind of focus is on self. Yeah. And then we create false theologies that actually work again, as I said, to hide us from God. And thus, Christianity became corrupted. And we, I'm going to tell you, this time in human history, God is calling out a people to finish the Reformation. To finish and complete what was started 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. Not stay stuck where Luther was 500 years ago, which is what many of the theological world and the Protestant churches are trying to do. They're trying to anchor everybody into 500-year-old thinking. Salvation would not be good news if God was not who he is. That's right. Would you want to spend eternity with a being who functions like Satan alleges? Uh, who is the source of pain and suffering? Who only, you're only safe with because Jesus is there to hide you from him? This isn't good news. Okay. The bottom question, in conjunction with this idea that salvation is primarily about, excuse me, gospel is primarily about our salvation, it asks the question, do you ever struggle with assurance? The assurance of salvation. Think about the reasons that undermine people's assurance. Life eternal is knowing God. So anything that undermines a true knowledge of God, a true experience with God, will undermine assurance. Does that make sense? Okay. So, think about the legal theologies of our misdeeds that we must confess and get accounted for. And if we don't confess, then they aren't accounted for because we haven't asked pardon for them unless the legal application of the blood of Christ can't be. And what happens if there's some sin that I did when I was in sixth grade that I forgot and I never confessed? Does it remain on the books? And if it remains on the books, will I still have to be punished even though I would have confessed it? But I can't remember. 
I've actually met people like this. They actually live in this fear. Is there some, and they spend hours trying to go through their memories to see if there's some sin they forgot to confess. How about I, I lose my temper and I, and I say a curse word and I step in the street and get hit by a car and I didn't confess it. <laughs> you know, the classic. This is the, the, uh, the, the evangelical call to, to, at, the, at the Bible studies, you know. It's like, okay, I don't want to close this hour because if someone walks out of here and they have some sin unconfessed and they get hit by a car... You haven't heard these types of things? Yes, always. Yes. And they wonder why people don't have assurance of salvation. It's the altar of fear. This altar of fear, yes. It's like somehow your salvation is dependent on some legal mechanics and accounting mechanism rather than the condition of your heart. Has your heart been changed? And thus the person who's been reborn, who has a heart change, they still might slip and stumble. But when the person who has a heart change slips and stumble, their heart is grieved. They're sickened. Oh, what a wretched man am I. I hate being this way. Oh, I long for the day when I'm completely recovered, restored, and healed. But I still have some old habits, conditioned responses, preconceived ideas, misunderstandings, wired-in reactions that still sometimes in certain situations cause me to reflexively do things that I really, my heart doesn't want to do anymore. You see the difference? Whereas the unconverted person, hey, that wasn't me. That was a woman you gave me. I have a right to that. You know what? Uh, I'm just expressing my freedom, my free speech. I have a right to talk that way if I want. If you're getting offended, that's on you. That's not on me. You see the difference? Self-justification. Rather than grieving at the weaknesses not yet fully healed. Think about the person with a sickness who with symptoms, I hate having a fever. I hate having this cough. I I so long to be freed of it. Versus the person with some sickness and goes, you know what? These symptoms, I get out of work. I I don't have to. Whenever my my mom asks me to do something, I just complain that I'm not feeling well. I don't have to. And they use their symptoms to advantage self. You see the difference? Yeah. Just before his crucifixion, Christ said, Satan is coming, and there's nothing in him that is attractive. Nothing in Christ. Right. Yeah. That's attractive. Yeah. We still have attractions to things as until we're healed. We are attracted by certain aspects. And when, the more we become like Christ, the less we'll become attracted to. That's correct. Absolutely correct, as the heart changes. Monday's lesson, first sentence, the first paragraph states, Amazingly enough, some people actually challenge the idea of human sinfulness, arguing that people are basically good. We talked about sin already, and in the book Servant God, I wrote chapter 2 in that book. It's by, I think, 19 authors. I wrote chapter 2, and the title of that chapter is What is Sin? And in that chapter, I I, uh, record uh, the responses I got from high school students when I put out three by five cards and asked them to answer the question on the card anonymously, what is sin? And some of the answers I got back went like this. this. This is the answer to the question, what is sin? An act contrary to that for which God stands. Something that separates us from God. Doing something morally wrong, anything evil or unjust, something that brings us down, the absence of anything good, anything not of God, doing anything you know deep inside is wrong, bad stuff, (laughs) a bad thing that Satan discovered and brought upon us, the cause of all pain and suffering, when you do something you feel guilty about, anything that makes God unhappy, something to be forgiven. Whenever you do wrong, you don't even care what you did. And then the next two answers were given by more than 10% of the students who answered. So this is the most frequent common answers. Sin is not following the Ten Commandments. Sin is going against the will of God. Now, as you hear these descriptions, have these descriptions gotten to the root of what sin is? Or are they, just, are they dancing around it, describing associated symptoms and signs and actions and reactions to sin? So, if, if would it be similar to this? Their answers are similar to this. Answering this question, what is disease? And here are the answers to what is disease. Something that goes against what health stands for. Something that requires quarantine. Something that is unhealthy. Something that is just bad or sick. Something that makes you feel bad. Doing anything you know deep inside is bad for you. A destructive element Satan discovered and brought upon us. Now, do these descriptions tell you what disease is? Or do they dance around it and describe some of the results and actions because of disease? Two students actually answered differently. Two students answered sin is the absence of love and the opposite of God's character. Sin is selfishness. Two students out of over 350. 
<laughs> Only two gave those answers. One, one gave one, one gave the other. This would be like saying disease is breaking the laws of health and cutting oneself off from the source of life. Or disease is the opposite of God's design for life. The majority of these responses were descriptions of some of the consequences and symptoms, not the actual problem of sin. And so the Bible describes sin in these two ways. Sin is lawlessness or transgression of the law. And that's in 1 John 3, 4. And in Romans 14, 23, everything does, that does not come from faith is sin. Now, are these describing the same thing or different things? And how do you, because sin is lawlessness and everything that does not come from faith is sin. You know, that word is what it means. So they must be describing the same thing. Can you explain how those two are the same? Okay. So first off, describe what law? The law of love, which is design protocols. And we've given many examples. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants. The plants give oxygen back to you. A never-ending circle of giving upon which life is built. But if you transgress the law, tie a plastic bag over your head, selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself, the wages of that is? I'm getting faster at that, aren't I? <laughs> Yeah, the way just that is death. Okay, but you see that, right? This is design law. And, and, and uh, that's the only physical example, but all, the, all God's laws function like that. So sin is transgression of that acting selfishly, which results in death. Okay, how is everything that does not come from faith sin? Well, remember the cascade of destructive events we went through. What is it that causes a breach in love? Lies believed break love and trust. Okay. And what happens when trust is broken? What do you do? You act in self-interest, fear and selfishness. That's right. Okay. Thus, when we don't trust God, we don't experience his love in our hearts, results in fear and selfishness. Thus, we act in self-centeredness, which is a transgression of the law. They're both telling the same thing. Just, for, just one is trying to give you an underlying reason why. Because our trust has been broken. That incites fear and leaves us isolated on our own to act selfishly, which is transgression of the design law of love. Unfortunately, it comes through level four thinking like human law, and most people think sin is transgressional is breaking the rules. You didn't get your TV off 30 seconds before the sun went down last night. You have, tra- you have broken the rule. You have a sin that needs to be confessed, or you will be punished. And this type of thinking causes God to be your enemy, and you live in fear. And the Sabbath doesn't, isn't a joy. I actually talked to them. I was taking a little side, a little idea just popped in my mind. I, I gave them in my lecture on the aging brain one of the benefits of a weekly rest in time to rest your mind. It helps you unwind, relax, and it actually reduces inflammatory cascades. It helps to reduce your risk of dementia to take a Sabbath rest each week. But I pointed out that's only true if, as it says in Isaiah, you call the Sabbath a delight. If the Sabbath is not a delight, if it's a day of imprisonment, then there is no relaxation, there's no rejuvenation, it only causes the worst stress day of the world. So imagine you've taken a vacation from your home, you've gone to your favorite resort down in a beach somewhere, but as you get there, you, you discover and you believe in your mind that terrorists have just taken over the compound and you're being held there now against your will. Do you have a nice time at the beach that week? Do you relax and unwind? See, when the Sabbath is presented as a day of restriction, a day in which you're monitored everything you do, a day if you step out of line, you're going to have a, 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 some type of punishment, some type of consequence. Instead of being a day of vacation, relaxation, rejuvenation, it becomes a day of enslavement that causes more stress and is destructive. It'd be better not to have a Sabbath than to do it that way. Just a little aside. Tuesday's lesson talks about how there was hope that with the 20th century, humanity would improve, advance, and move past the brutal the brutal ways of the past, but it actually is the most destructive century in human history with World War I, World War II, nuclear weapons, and so forth. We killed more people in the 20th century than in any century in human history. And they want to know what are the contributing factors and what do we learn from this? Well, you know, there's a movement that began in the United States of America in the early part of the 20th century called the eugenics movement. And eugenics movement was based on Darwinism, that if we took the best, brightest, and strongest among us and bred them together, then the generations would get stronger and humanity would advance. And if we eliminate from the breeding population the weak, the diseased, the infirmed, the imbeciles among us, then we will improve. And this led in America to forced sterilization, where people were sterilized against their will, Hundreds of thousands. Primary place of sterilization, forced sterilization, where it took place, psychiatric hospitals. 
psychiatrically ill were sterilized, hundreds of thousands across America, to, 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 to improve the species, to advance us. And, this, this, and there were scientific papers written on this. And these authors and scientific papers in America became the basis for the Nazis and their movement for a master race. And then ultimately led to the final solution of killing everybody with inferior genes. Do you see the outcome? If you actually believe the evolutionary theory that the strong survive and they kill the weak, you have no objection against what Hitler did. There is no moral objection if you really believe there's no God and simply the strong survive and kill the weak. The only place you can have a platform to stand to criticize Hitler is believing in a creator God who's love. If this is all arbitrary forces randomly happening and then and we advance the species by killing off the weaker, then this is Hitler's, Hitler's behavior is the natural outcome of that. And to be celebrated. It's, I mean, if you believe in evolution, I mean, if you, if you go down that road, it's to be celebrated. But, so are, are we saying then that it's healthier to believe in God than to not believe in God? Well, it all depends on the God you believe in. <laughs> yes, it does. If you believe in a God who is authoritarian, dictator-like, a punishing God who must be appeased, who has intolerance for de- the slightest deviation from his rule, even if you just eat a piece of fruit, he'll kill you. Wow. If that's your view. Then it would lead to the Crusades, the Inquisition, and burning people at the stake who disagree, witch trials, all types of atrocities, blowing up abortion clinics, and then look at the Muslim extremists today who cut off people's heads because they believe differently. It doesn't have to be Christian. Any God that you worship who has those methods, you become like, and you commit atrocities. So believing in God isn't better than the evolutionary view if you have the wrong view of God. And I, and I said in many places, I'll say it again, there isn't much more dangerous in the world than someone on a mission for God who doesn't know him. So the only protection we have is to come back to a true knowledge of God. So the lesson asks us to read Romans 1, 22 and 23. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then they asked, how do we see this manifested today? How do you see this exchanging the truth for God, the truth of God, for lies and distortions? And of course, the Bible says when they did this, their minds became dark and depraved and futile. There's a consequence to this. That's the law of worship, design law. By beholding, we become changed. You can't help but be changed by what you would worship. And the Bible is saying here, they exchanged the truth of God for this type of distortion. And the lesson's asking, do we see it happening today? Anybody can shout any examples out about how the truth of God has been replaced in our society today with other things that people worship. Football teams? Do they gather in these great cathedrals and each week and give a donation and, and, uh, and, and scream and, and they wear the colors of their team and, and they identify with and want to become like? And... Hmm. Movie stars? Idols? Don't we call them even idols sometimes? American Idol, remember the show? Okay. What about cars or houses or possession or money or power? What about a God who requires the blood of a human sacrifice to pay him for the sin so he won't kill you? What about that? Well, here's a quote out of a book called Faith I Live By. One of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church wrote this more than 100 years ago. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word in Christ in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? God is a God of truth. Justice and mercy are his attributes of his throne. He is the God of love, of pity, and tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we seek to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. Do you see all these characteristics of benevolence and kindness and love and patience and mercy? He's not an arbitrary, he's not the source of pain, not the source of punishment, doesn't need appeasement, doesn't need wrath taken away. By the way, when you understand wrath and a simple way for you to communicate it to people, does God have anger and wrath towards sin? Do doctors have anger and wrath towards disease? 
Do doctors want to destroy and eliminate disease? Do they want to destroy and eliminate sick patients? Okay? When we understand this is a condition, as we talked about earlier in class, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, that corrupts God's design and destroys He hates it, and he wants to eliminate it, but he doesn't hate the people struggling with it. Never does. But when you make it behavioral, then we hate the people who do the bad deeds. Like that description we read from Friday's lesson. You purposely choose to do these things. Wednesday's lesson, second paragraph. Second paragraph. But he wasn't going to let his own people, his own countrymen, off the hook either. Despite all the advantages that they had been given, they too were sinners condemned by God's law and in need of saving grace of Christ. What do you think it means when it says condemned by God's law? How do you hear those words? Condemned by God's law. External. External. You've done bad deeds, you've come under the condemnation of the law, but there's good news. You have an advocate in the court who is also your judge who will plead his blood basically to himself. I mean, this is kind of how it's often presented, right? Does it ever sound silly? (laughs) Is there a difference being condemned legally and sentenced to an imposed death carried out by some external intelligence, is there a difference between that and being diagnosed as terminal and being condemned by the terminal state to die from your condition unless remedy is applied? Do you hear those the same? And so what does the Bible describe God's Ten Commandment law in the New Testament as being over and over again? I would not have known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. Uh, The law was not given for the righteous. It was given for the wicked. Yes, the law is a diagnostic instrument to expose the sickness in our hearts so that no one is with the excuse and can say there's nothing wrong with me. So metaphorically, the, the law is like an MRI for the soul. It examines what's wrong and exposes it. How can someone be let off the hook of a disease? That concept just doesn't... There's no letting off the hook. There's only curing the condition. Right. So that first sentence about he wouldn't let his countrymen off the hook. So which version impose law with a magistrate whose law condemns you to death and he will be required by justice to kill you unless you get legal accounting or you have a condition that if unremedied will result in your death and, and his law diagnoses you as having this condition, but he offers you free remedy that will cure you if you let him. Which version leads you to trust him and open your heart to him? And which version makes you afraid of him? If you understand functionally what God wants from you, what does he want? He wants your love and trust. Can you get love and trust by threatening people? You can't. And thus, in the lesson, it says on Thursday's lesson, we should notice that God's goodness leads, not forces, sinners to repentance. God uses no coercion. Forced repentance would destroy the whole purpose of repentance. The lesson is absolutely right on this in Thursday's lesson. When I looked up in the dictionary, what is the definition of coercion? Because God never uses it. That's exactly right. And here's what the dictionary says. Coercion, use of force or intimidation to obtain compliance. Hmm. Then what would it mean if God said, justice will require me to kill you if you don't obey my rules? That's coercion. This is the contradiction that people who are stuck in the false law get into constantly. And did you notice the back and forth contradictions in the lessons over and over again? The next sentence after you read says that if God would, would force them, then everyone would be saved. <laughs> oh yeah, If God forced repentance, then... Would not everyone be saved? For why would he force some and... (laughs) I did miss that. (laughs) Okay, so they don't understand exactly that. So God has the power. He absolutely has the power to, inside your head, inside your heart, to overwrite your individuality and and to rewrite a perfect identity, individuality character in you. But the moment he does that, you don't exist anymore. He's erased you. You're not you. You're some other new creation, new entity, new individuality that God has created. You become a robot. You become a puppet. You're incapable of loving at this point. It destroys everything God stands for. So God cannot force repentance and still be the God that we love and admire. It's not possible. Because God never violates his own laws, which are an expression of his own character. He's, not, he's always true to himself. And love requires freedom. I can't program people with a computer to love. 
It's irony. Thank you for pointing that out. I, I hadn't had such a good shock in such a long time. Her gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love who really is true to your principles of love, even though it did cost you to stay true to yourself, to reveal love, to bring us the solution in Jesus Christ, to to win the battle that we couldn't win over both the lies and the distortions, but also the the temptations to act in self-interest. We could never win those battles, but you did. We ask now that the truth will set us free from distortions about you, that we will really know you, not just cognitively, but in our hearts, and we will experience your presence. So we open our hearts and trust me, the Spirit come and take the victories of Christ and reproduce it in us with new drives, new desires, new motives, new compassion, new love, new self-control, that we will live in harmony with you and we will be lights in this world. And we pray now that you will open avenues of communication, bring resources and people to bear to help share this message that the world will be lighted and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.